This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Details continue to come in about what happened in Saskatchewan involving the bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos hockey team. Uh, there are so many different angles to this story that uh, that we want to cover and so many different elements to, to the human tragedy that can occur. Uh, Dan Ukrainitz uh, was actually supposed to be part of the broadcast team carrying that game. It was supposed to happen later that night between the Nepawin Hawks and uh, the Broncos. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about that. Dan, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate you coming on today. Well, thanks for having me on, but uh, an, an awful tragedy up in our part of the world. It is. Listen, you. This is this is your life. This is your world. This is about kids traveling long distances on buses. Uh, it happens with such regularity. You just don't think that something like this is going to happen, though, do you? You really don't. It's almost one of those things that you're you're thinking it's a guarantee they'll get from one destination to another, and uh, that the bus is a safe haven. It's, it's somewhere that. Um, really these bonds for these hockey players that are built for life and these are their best friends for life and uh, an absolute tragedy and and one that uh, is just um just i think the best word for me is just unfair and and uh, it just it, it get like you say it is just at so many levels for so many people uh in in this part of the province and uh and uh definitely also for back in Humboldt. Talk to us a little bit about the connection between uh, teams like this and the community and in, in, in small-town Canada. Uh, I mean, places like Hamilton and Toronto, I mean, there's minor hockey every place, and, and we support it and we love it and we go to the arena and cheer on our kids. But uh, in, in places like Humboldt, I mean, there's no NHL team. I mean, these are their stars, aren't they? These are the kids that they, they, they just gravitate to. This is, this is their, their pride. These are their heroes growing up for those kids, and and I I was the same way. I grew up in Nippon, and uh, it, I you know I stayed involved uh, cheering for the team all through growing up. And it, it, the one that really hits me hard, I think, with with Humboldt. Uh, I mean, and and obviously there's so many different uh, other stories to it, but it's the kids that grew up in Humboldt, cheered for the team growing up. Uh, you know, obviously dreamed about one day playing for the team, achieve that, and then this this happens. I believe there was about four or five boys on the team that were actually from Humboldt and grew up with with them as their heroes. And then it's it sort of just in a tragic way they uh, they're going to go down as heroes forever in that community. How did you? How did you and the, and the broadcast team and, and the, the other team? How did the Hawks find out about this? I, I was. Uh, Honestly, I was just putting my jacket on to go down to the rink. I uh, got a phone call. I was going to be doing the color commentary on the game, and the play-by-play announcer for the Nippon Hawks called me, and he said, the game's canceled. They don't bother coming to the rink. They don't want people coming to the rink. And I'm like, well, that's kind of a strange one. Uh, you know, the, if the team was in an accident, you know, then you know, maybe a tired butt blown or something like that, get another bus. And he said, no, like, this is much worse. And... Once those words hit me, uh, I realized the potential enormity of this because of so many people that are carried on the bus. And, uh, and so it, it went from, I think, a few minutes of kind of just processing to wanting to help out. And uh, I immediately told my parents, and my mom rushed down and, and helped out at the grief center. And she said even in, that, in those moments, the families were coming in. They, they brought them to a church there. And... Uh, she said that all you could do was just hand a bottle of water over or hand a cup of coffee over 
there wasn't words for these families. And, and, and so it, it was just, uh, everyone has been in shock for the last, uh, you know, over 48 hours, uh, almost 72 hours here. And, and it's, it's been a, uh, one that's affected our community, but just absolutely devastated the humble community. Every parent, every fan, every member of the community that's ever put their kid on a bus and, you know, for a hockey game or a tournament someplace, uh, this must have been a punch in the gut to them to think, oh my God, we never thought something like this could happen. And, and it really was. It was it, it was where the parents were, were waiting at the rink, waiting for the bus. The bus wasn't coming, and generally it arrives at the rink at 5 or 5.30 for a 7.30 puck drop, and, and these fans are sitting, and, and these parents and, and brothers and sisters and grandparents and uncles are, are sitting at the rink waiting, and there was concern. And, um, you know, it, it's just an absolute tragedy. It's one where... Um, uh, I mean, it, I think for everyone, as they process it, it's just it's going to take time and, and a lot of healing for these communities. Give me your thoughts about what you've seen as a reaction to this, and 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 obviously in the immediate community, we you, you know, having lived there, uh, Dan, what was going to happen, and I, I know you're not surprised by that in the sense of community that those people have, but to see the way that the the grief has spread and people wanted to to show their support and their love. Uh, for Humboldt, uh, even with the National Hockey League games and, you know, a couple of the teams, the circles, the center ice prayer circles and so many other things. It's it's overwhelming. It really is. And, and to see so much of it, uh, I was actually in Humboldt for one of the games on, on Tuesday and, and just to see the arena on TV last night for the vigil there, um, it really hit home because we did a post-game show and I stood right next to the Humboldt radio broadcaster as he interviewed the head coach, both of those uh, gentlemen perished in the in the accident and it's 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 those types of things that are going to be burned in my mind on tuesday Humboldt had won the game and as most nhl teams do they went to center ice and saluted the fans that image is going to be burned in my mind and from a local level here at nifflin i mean not to take away from anything from Humboldt, but all the first responders came from this area and did whatever they could help and it's a small enough community in nifflin and, and certainly there was other communities involved but Nippon's a community community of about 4,400 people, and you probably couldn't go down a street or into a crescent or or anywhere and not have some family that was either a firefighter and and again it's a volunteer firefighting department, mm-hmm. not a professional firefighting department. Uh, there there might be an RCMP officer on that street, a, a doctor, a nurse, a, an EMT uh, worker, and and so every uh, street was affected in this town and. So then all of a sudden now, because they've seen this horror scene, the community here is going to have to rally around and build up those families and walk along with them uh, to deal with that grief. How does a community, or I guess you can't prepare for something like this, but but notwithstanding that, uh, those volunteer emergency responders that you just talked about, and of course healthcare workers and hospitals, uh, just seem to know exactly what to do as, as if there was a plan for this. And uh, it's it's amazing how, how I guess, I, I don't know if it's adrenaline or what, but they just all of a sudden seem to know what to do and when to do it and, and how to help. That, that's so true. And, and they said that it was just an, uh, at the local hospital here, and, and really it's not a, a very big of a hospital, but they, they said that it was everyone chipping in all night doing everything they can and then a lot of the um, a lot of the people that were on the bus were sent by uh, air ambulance to, to Saskatoon mm-hmm. or 
or one of the other larger hospitals, but for the, the local hospital here, it was just a matter of, you know, there was uh, kitchen workers that stayed all night uh, making food to make sure that the doctors and nurses were fed and, and taking taking care of that. And, and just, they said it was just little things like janitors that stayed in, and held doors open to make sure that uh, in the, that chaos, things could be as uh, as done as well as possible. But you're right, there, you don't prepare for something like that. And um, I'm sure stories will come out in the in the weeks and months ahead of uh, incredible feats that people did. And um, but 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 really, it was one where uh, so many people went above and beyond and and took on more than maybe they would ever have thought they would in their positions. But they they did an incredible job with it. Dan, what about your kids? What about the the Nippowin Hawks themselves? I mean, you know, they were at the arena, or I guess on their way to the arena if they weren't there already, getting prepared for a game. I mean, this is a to suggest this is a shock. I guess is is an understatement. But to these kids, I mean, how how do they go forward? This is I, I would imagine when you're talking grief counseling. I mean, you've got to reach out to that those guys playing that thought they were going to play a game, and, and they know these guys. I mean, they were playing these guys in a playoff series. This this is not an abstract. These were names and faces and kids that they knew. It, it was interesting in in my role. Just out of curiosity. During the series, I don't know why I did it or, or what my reason was behind it, I, I, I got curious about how many of the players on the two teams had played on teams together themselves, uh, whether it was in, in uh, midget or in minor midget or, or bantam or one of those levels. And I, I got curious just, just thinking about it right at the start of the series for, for no real reason. And there was 12 players from the Nippon Hawks that had played with one of the members, uh, at least, of the, the Humboldt Broncos and and so there, it really does. It hits home because those are former teammates of yours. It wasn't just a blind face uh, behind a mask across the center ice from you, but it was potentially a friend, maybe somebody that um, you've you've you know shared life with. And um, for for so many of them, it really has been a tough weekend. Um, they, um, as far as the team, they they, they said actually they, there, there was a vigil held also in Nippon. Um, uh, and, and, and it was a very well done service. And uh, a lot of the um, people that were there said that the Nippon team, the, and I you know it's a small positive, but the fact that these players had a team around them, a support system, players that they could immediately hug, players that they could immediately talk through with this. And they had that group opportunity to share in this as a, as a team. And, and I think, you know, they're just young guys. They're, they're between the ages of 16 and 20 uh, playing in these, on these teams. And so they're, they're not really uh, that hardened by life and they're very, very innocent to things. And, and for them, at least having that support structure has and will help. And I know for other teams within the league, it's the same sort of stories, even just talking to some of the radio broadcasters of the team, they ride that bus too. And they're, they're struggling with it with themselves because they're, uh, they saw one of their own also perish. In Tyler Bieber, the play-by-play voice of, of Humboldt, that, that, yeah, he, he died in the crash. Yeah, and so it's just, it's so many that it affects and so many people that are, are sharing in this, and, and it really has helped to see the outpouring of support from across Canada and around the world because um, to know that people are walking alongside of you and even, even I'm sure for the community of Humboldt to have the players from the, the Swift Current Broncos crashed during the mid 80s mm-hmm. um, for them to be there and to say you know we've been through this we know the thoughts and the worries and 
and the uh, the anxieties and the grief that you're going to have from this. And I'm sure you know that won't be a uh, take a lot of the pain away, but at least it'll help with some a lot some of the people to be able to cope. Dan, thank you so much for the time. It's uh, such a difficult time for you and and for everybody in both communities. And I really appreciate you ta- talking with us this morning. Well, thank you for having me on. Take care. Dan Ukrainitz, uh, who was uh, part of the broadcast team for the Nippon Hawks, who were supposed to be playing uh, against Humboldt uh, just hours uh, before that crash. After Yesterday, of course, we know about uh, the memorial service. And, uh, again, I, it's it's one of those things where you, you can't disassociate yourself from it. You become part of it. You become part of the emotion. Adam McVicker is a videographer with Global News. Uh, he was there yesterday. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Adam, thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thank you, Bill. You cover an awful lot of stuff. As a, as a as a broadcaster and as a journalist, you're uh, somewhat disassociating yourself because you're there to get a story. But how could you not get caught up in the emotion yesterday? Uh, it's been very difficult not to get caught up in the emotion. I know I've had to take a few minutes, um, multiple days, of course. we were. I was given the phone call at about uh, 6 p.m. on Friday evening. I went to the craft site immediately and uh, stayed in Nipawin Friday night and then into Saturday Luckily, got to go home and sleep in my own bed in Saskatoon Saturday uh, or Friday, uh, yeah, Saturday night. Sorry, I'm losing track of the days here. And then yesterday morning, drove out to Humboldt here, where I've been ever since. Talk to me about going to the crash scene. What did you see? Uh, what did you feel? The barricade was miles out of the time. Very dark. You could just see the cherries off the off the uh, the, the police cars and, and ambulances in the area. Um, it was a very fluid situation. Uh, we we couldn't see anything. We made it to Nipawin to try to speak to some people up there. Of course, um, it was it was horrible because on the way up, we're hearing you know more and more what some information and more things coming out, and it was just an absolute chaotic scene. When, when we got to the barricade, um, and of course, pitch black out there in that area, so it was very chaotic um, on on that Friday night. Yesterday at the memorial service, the prime minister was there. Don Cherry from Hockey Night in Canada was there. Describe the scene as you, as you saw it and, and as you shot it. Well, the, throughout the day yesterday, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I didn't shoot it. I was just uh, I'm rep- I'm just reporting out here. Just uh, uh, but what from what I did see uh, throughout the day, everything yesterday was that it's a really team large team atmosphere out here. Everyone trying to do what they can to help in this situation. Um, plenty of people bringing food, flowers, anything just to pay tribute and to help uh, the people here at the arena. Um, there's been hundreds of people flowing in and out. And of course, at the vigil last night, um, thousands showing up. Uh, it was people showing up hours in advance to try to get a spot. The overflow rooms completely packed. There was a theater in town showing it. There was so many different places in town people were seeing it. It seemed it was interesting to see this town take all the support they've been receiving and, and to pay tribute to the team last night. But it was also interesting to see this town as the world watched this town last night. It was all over the place. Local restaurants, everybody had it on the TV screens. It was it was an incredible moment where everybody was fixated on this one arena at that one time. And then, of course, at 730 when game six would have been played in this very arena, a moment of silence. And I swear you could hear a pin drop across this province. Quite a scene, quite a weekend. Uh, and, of course, just etched in our minds forever and ever. Adam, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us. I appreciate the time today. Bill, thank you for the time. Adam McVicker, a videographer with Global News out of Saskatoon.
who was on the scene and, of course, covering the memorial service yesterday uh, in Humboldt. Uh, it was quite an emotional scene. And uh, among many speaking was uh, the president of the hockey club in Humboldt, Kevin Granger. In all this darkness, a light has shone through. This light has come from the first responders and the medical professionals who have worked miracles and continue to work miracles for those members of our Broncos family. Uh, very emotional in the voices of just about everybody who spoke and uh, quite a scene. And uh, we share their grief, of course, and uh, lots more to come, I'm sure, in the days, weeks ahead as the investigation continues as to why something as tragic as this would happen. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Last week we were talking about the delays in the Ontario Municipal Board appeals because uh, they're all backlogged because the OMB pretty much is dissolved and there's a new body there. Anyway, one of those is music on the patios uh, that Hamilton was supposed to go and argue, and uh, that's not going to happen, probably maybe even not for this summer season. Doesn't that drive you nuts? But as soon as we heard that, of course, it conjured up images of Sarkoa. That, guys, that's really... That's really the picture that comes to mind when you start talking about this sort of thing, music on patios and, well, all the other things that uh, that fell out of that as a result. You know, of course, that the Waterfront Trust, who was supposed to be in charge of that, uh, signed a deal with Sarkoa and uh, the owners to go and open this restaurant at the old Discovery Center. And the history of this is uh, interesting, to say the least. And, of course, they locked the doors, and uh, the owners, uh, Sam Destro has been on the program many times, saying, look, they want to continue business there. They've got a lease, and they want the city or the Waterfront Trust or whoever's supposed to be responsible for it to uh, to honor that. Well, they were in court late last week to try to get some sort of a, a agreement on this. I don't know that they made a whole lot of headway. Uh, John Best is the uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. He's been following this story from day one, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. John, how are you this morning? Just great, Bill. You Thanks. were there. You were in court last week, were you not? Yeah, I, I, I went over and uh, listened to the arguments. Uh, they were uh, the, the two sides were were each given a half hour to make their case, and uh, and then there was some back and forth after that. And uh, yeah, it was kind of an interesting morning. What in a, in a nutshell then? What what what's going on here? I mean, we know what's the the, the current status is right now. That uh, that the two owners want to go back in there. They want to reopen their restaurant. Uh, the city and I guess the Waterfront Trust, I don't know who speaks for whom now, but uh, they seem to say, no, it's over, done with, you guys are gone, we're going to sell the thing and get somebody else in there. That seems to be their intent. So what were the owners, Destro and Fayaz, are trying to do on Friday? Well, they're trying to get uh, what is called a certificate of pending litigation. And uh, what what happens is uh, that that sort of encumbers the the site, so it it's not it's not like a lien exactly, but it if anybody was thinking of uh, buying or uh, leasing the property, they have this knowledge that there is this uh, pending lawsuit against it, and so that has the effect of basically stopping anybody from uh, buying the property, uh, stops the city from selling it. Because no no developer would take that on with with that uncertainty hanging over the property, so that's what was being argued. Uh, just to correct your preamble slightly, there was absolutely no attempt uh, Friday at at resolving the issue. That they weren't there to resolve the issue. Uh, both sides were there to present very opposite points of view. To that point, though, I'm I'm. I'm 
one of the things that's always stuck with me is, is anytime Mr. Destro's been on the program here, he uh, he maintains that, look, they still have a lease that's in good standing. The city says it's been voided. Is there any resolution or any clarity on that? No, it's certainly not uh, not in the arguments that were presented. I mean, what, what was essentially being argued on Friday was the, the Sarkoa uh, attorneys were arguing that uh, that there's a very low bar that needs to be set in order to get this certificate. In other words, you don't have to prove that you, that you could win the lawsuit. You simply have to prove that there's a, a legitimate argument to be made in front of a court. And, of course, the other side was arguing that uh, Sarko is effectively out of business and that there's really uh, no argument and there's no need to put this, uh, this uh, certificate against the property. So that that was kind of the sense of it. It was uh, two sides, uh, um, very articulate lawyers on both sides uh, arguing the case, and I, I couldn't help but sit there and think about how the meter is running with, uh, you know, it wasn't one lawyer on each side. It was like three or four lawyers on each side. So uh, a lot of uh, very capable but very expensive uh, legal um, horsepower being put to the task. And, and my understanding is, and I'm not sure if it was the lawyers for the trust or for the city, because they're both represented by different law teams here, uh, that their counter-argument to, to the Sarkoa folks is that, look, at you, you, you've stripped the place. I mean, there's nothing left there. What do you mean you want to open again? Yeah, that argument, that argument was, was made uh, definitely by the, uh, by the people for, uh, for the city. Um, it's, you know, it's just sitting there, I mean, I used to cover a lot of trials. I haven't covered many more recently, but the one thing I, I did learn about covering trials is you, you absolutely cannot make any assessment of how it's going to go by the demeanor of the judge. Uh, the judge in this case uh, seemed to be very, uh, he'd done his homework. Um, you know, he's sitting there uh, with, you know, probably five enormous binders, and and essentially what's happening here is the judge has seen all this and has heard all he's read all the arguments so he knows coming into the court what the two sides are going to say so there's no surprises for him and then really uh, what happens is the lawyers get up and they they kind of highlight uh the the areas where they want to definitely draw the judge's attention to but but essentially uh you know he's read the briefs and and may have a thought in his head um, you know, subject to what he hears in court, but you know the the thing is well understood at the, by the time the trial starts. I think people, you know, you're watching Perry Mason or some of these shows, and you think that all this is going to be sort of revealed in in the trial. But essentially, the judge already knows what the what the essence of the two arguments is. So there's not going to be any aha moments here. Not likely, unless somebody uh, you know loses their senses in some way. But um, you know, it, it was very technical. Um, you know, and and uh, it, it, I I think what Sarkoa is saying and and have said all along is that they kind of smell a rat uh, in the sense that the uh, you know the, yes there was a, an ongoing um, uh, there was an ongoing deficit uh, they they'd missed a, a few months rent. But it was tolerated uh, by the Waterfront Trust for two and a half years. Um, and so the question is, why the sudden pulling of the plug? And, and their sense is that they, they suddenly realized that there was a much higher value that could be obtained on the property if they could somehow break the lease.
Well, so and listen, that's, that's I, I mean, if anybody knows about deficits, the Waterfront Trust. So, you know, there should be some kinship there. But but Sam Destro said on this program some months ago, John, that uh, that he feels as if he got this this was a setup. He got squeezed out because the city wanted to do something else with the property. Yeah, I mean that that's been their argument. They they say that it, it looked you know when when they first you got to remember what the situation was when when Sir Carl went in there. Uh, Waterfront Trust was in deep trouble. They they were they'd lost a tremendous amount of money over the previous five or six years they were absolutely desperate for uh, a new revenue stream sarcoa goes in there and and is paying uh, you know so the waterfront trust they're paying something like 1200 a month for the discovery center which is a ridiculously low amount but sarcoa was paying them somewhere in the area of 35000 a month so <laughs> You know, the, you, you would have thought that they they could have made some money um, with, with a deal like that, but they nonetheless continued to lose money. So e- even with this roughly four hundred thousand dollar a year windfall, uh, they 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 continued to lose money on their other operations. So that was the situation, you know, back in twenty fourteen or thirteen, whenever the thing got started. But then as the Pier Eight project uh, went through uh, its various hurdles and suddenly it became a reality all of a sudden uh, anybody could see that you know the, the the more of that land that can be developed the more valuable the project is so their their argument is simply that that they were kicked out uh, because something better came along and and uh, that their lease was violated the value in all of this is the lease uh, the you know the tw- the twenty five or thirty year lease that mm-hmm. that's where the value is and and of course that was demonstrated uh, a month ago or a few weeks ago when the city paid the waterfront trust three million dollars for that lease and it's probably worth more than that in the hands of a developer. But in this case, the that's ongoing now and this the one that you attended uh, where uh, Justice Periowski is overseeing this. This is not going to decide any of this. This is really just about uh, this uh, CPL, the certificate pending legislation that they they want to get. Yeah, this has got nothing to do with the merits of the big case. Uh, it's strictly uh, the the question. I guess that. Uh, listening to the lawyers that needs to be satisfied is is there what they call a triable case is there a uh, a prospect that there that we have a case that that is triable and of course you know I'm not an expert and I don't want to start practicing law without a license but I mean we do know that there is a trial date set for November uh so I I don't know exactly how that figures in but um we'll we'll find out I mean you've got two very opposite points of view um the the one uh the sarcoa lawyer is saying that it's a very very low threshold that needs to be satisfied to get the certificate and the other side saying uh you know they they shouldn't get it so who knows well what are the implications i i'm told that judge Pierreski is going to rule on this shortly maybe a week whatever the case might be whatever the time frame but what are the implications of that? If he says, yes, you can have your certificate, does that validate Sarkoa's argument that there's a valid lawsuit here? Well, it, it uh, depends on what you mean by a valid lawsuit. Uh, it's not a predictor of the outcome. In other words, you don't have to prove that, that, you are, that you have a winning lawsuit. You just have to prove that you have the basis to, to launch a, a lawsuit. So... You can't read anything into it, I don't think, other than what will happen, obviously, is that the property will be 
um, encumbered with this certificate, and, and that means that it's not likely to be part of a, a, a purchase or a sale or any kind of a new lease. I, I just was just before we started talking here, I went online to uh, take a look at these four finalists for developing Pier 8. Uh, and looking at their sketches, so one or two of them appear to show the Discovery Center still part of that block. And then there's a couple that are, it's not clear from the aerial sketches whether they perhaps that the Discovery Center is not there. So um, I, I would invite people to take a closer look at those, as I will. Um, I just started looking at them a few minutes ago. But, uh, you know, there there's four major consortia that are looking at developing the area, and it's interesting to see whether they envision the, the ultimate Pure 8 as, as having the Discovery Center or whether, you know, something else is built there. All right, I know we're rolling down the road of hypothetical here, but if that were the case, then they're counting on Pure 8 being part of their development. If that doesn't happen, and if it's some subsequent trial, they rule that, no, you, it's not, uh, that lease is valid, what does that do to these four people that uh, that were going to become partners, I guess, with the city on this PRA development? Well, as I say, a couple of them do appear to show peer, uh, the the Discovery Center as part of the final project. I mean, at first glance, it looks like there's a tremendous amount of property to be developed with or without uh, the Sarcoa property. So I would highly question whether it would be a deal breaker um, at the end of the day. The attraction there is the fact that that property is right on the waterfront, and it's a, it's a, it's a jewel in terms of um, desirability for a developer. So I don't think it would it would kill any of these uh, any of these developments at this stage. It's it's all very hypothetical, and it's 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 not unlike what we see when condo developments are being proposed. Uh, you know, where the, the the builder will come out with an initial vision. Um, sometimes, or in, like in the case of the uh, Television City, where they got this monumental, huge tower, that's what is being originally envisioned by the developer. But what will they actually settle for at the end of the day? It could be quite a different matter. But but this is obviously a very contentious uh, piece of land, notwithstanding this argument going on between uh, Mr. Desto and Mr. Fiella and the city and the Waterfront Trust, uh, because even within that argument, uh, there's uh, quite a, a fear going on within the community right now. Uh, the city seemed to indicate they want to sell the property to maybe one of these developers, I, yet to be determined. Yet there's a, a big move right now by some community members to say, no, 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 the city should hang on to that and look for alternative uses. So this is, a, this is really starting to develop into quite a storm. It is, although I, I just happened to glance at, at one of the uh, four uh, proposals, and I noticed that um, while, the, while the building that they appear to have in the current location of the Discovery Center was, seemed to be modified somewhat, uh, it was labeled as uh, having things like a library and uh, you know public uses. So you know the question is uh, if if that piece of property ended up nonetheless, uh, even if it was redeveloped, if it ended up being uh, put into public use, that might well mollify uh, the people right now that are fighting to save the the discovery center. I, I think it's the function that they're fighting for, not so much the bricks and mortar. 
How much of a holdup is this going to cause? Because I, I get the sense when I talk to the city representatives about this peer aid development, John, that they want to get this thing done sooner than later. And this is, uh, let's face it, if you're an incumbent councillor looking for re-election, I would think this is one of the jewels that you want to put on your campaign literature to say, look what we did this term. Uh, yeah, don't I, look at the stadium. Look what we did this term. Yeah, given the you know the amount of time it takes to to bring a development to fruition, I, I would think that the 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 need to hurry is more on the political side. Absolutely. Out. I I don't think it would have a you know between now and November. That's you know six months, I, I seven months I guess. I I don't think it would have a fundamental uh, effect on the uh, on the overall development because there's so much of the property is is now available for development it's been serviced it's ready to go so you you could see uh, i think uh, it not being a significant factor if it doesn't go much past november well, I'm going to declare my interest in this and it's it's purely <laughs> from a journalistic standpoint. I have no skin in the game here at all. But there have been so many questions raised uh, about what's gone on, who said what, who signed what, who gave whom permission to do what, uh, that I'd kind of like to see the suit go ahead because I think a lot of that stuff's going to come out in the wash if it does. Well, it will. And uh, w- one of the lawyers uh, for Sercoa pointed out that they've just gone through a, a lengthy discovery session. That's where everybody sits down in a room with a stenographer, the lawyers for both sides, there's no judge present, and they basically uh, ask each other questions to find out what the other person's case is. Uh, so they, you know, so they know that that's a tenet of, of our law that that you kind of have to show your cards. So they they've had those sessions, and it was mentioned that when uh, when Werner Plessel, the executive director of the Waterfront Trust, was was being questioned that on dozens of occasions, he he was uh, told by his lawyers not to answer the questions. That that works in a discovery, but it doesn't work when you're in when when the trial is actually on. Then uh, questions that are asked have to be answered. So yeah, I, I think they're, they're, I think we'll learn a lot more from the trial than we learned last week at this uh, at this hearing. Well, one of the photos that just stands out in my mind is this whole thing started to unfold. Uh, was members of the trust saying that they didn't think that uh, that you know was Mr. Destro, Mr. Fiello were going to have these huge speakers that were going to be blaring all over the place when mm-hmm. they talked about patio music and and somebody I think it's the Bay Observer, John. You had that picture of uh, I get the ribbon cutting for the official opening, yeah. and there there are four or five members of the Waterfront Trust standing right beside the speakers. Yeah, well, that's right. And a couple of um, uh, look to me like uh, Stratocaster guitars behind them an organ, uh, big amps. Uh, I guess you could miss that because they did have their back to them, but uh, <laughs> we can all draw our own conclusions, I think. We should uh, get some idea as to how uh, Justice Perioski is going to rule on this within a week or so then? That's uh, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like he's going to be uh, back fairly quickly with, with his ruling, so... That'll be the next chapter in this saga, I guess. Curiouser and curiouser, isn't it? Yeah. John, thanks so much for this. You're welcome. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, this this thing with Sarkoa goes on and on and on. And it it kind of looks, don't you get the impression, the city's kind of saying, nothing to see here, nothing to see. That was yesterday, this is today, we're moving on. But uh, there could well be some legal reasons why they aren't quite moving on just yet. We'll see. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. This is one of the most controversial and maybe misunderstood elements of, uh, of city politics, and it's uh, the idea of uh, conflict of interest. Well, 
It was dealt with the other day at the Hamilton Governance Review Subcommittee, and uh, they've agreed to get rid of a section of the city's code of conduct which required councillors to disclose non-pecuniary interest at meetings. What does all this mean? What are the implications? Uh, we welcome to the program George Rustay, who is, of course, the city's integrity commissioner. Uh, Mr. Rustay, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Yes, good morning, Mr. Kelly. Good to talk to you. Great to have you with us here. This is a phrase that gets thrown around often in politics. Conflict of interest, conflict of interest. I'm not so sure if even some of the councillors fully understand exactly what's going on. Maybe explain to us what recommendation you brought forward and why. Well, sir, the uh, code of conduct of the city of Hamilton at the present time includes a a section which requires members of council to disclose what are, what are called non-pecuniary interests. They have in a matter uh, being dealt with by the council or, or a local board or committee. And uh, I recommended to the council, and it was dealt with the other day at the uh, governance subcommittee, uh, that they remove that section. It's a, uh, a, a very vague section. It uh, puts the councillors in, in a bit of a, a shadow uh, because it requires reporting um, of their so-called pecuniary interest, which is not well-defined, and uh, still allows them to participate in the consideration at, at council or committee of, a, of the matter in which they have the so-called non-pecuniary interest. And to me, it's a, uh, a confusing and, and vague provision, and it's an undue incursion on the privacy of counselors. It casts a, a shadow, because you, you have a situation where a counselor declares a so-called interest and then uh, participates in the matter in any event, as counselors, of course, are required to do when they're in attendance at counselor or committee. And it, uh, I, I think it's in conflict with the Municipal Conflict of Interest Act, which sets out tests of uh, conflict of interest uh, in, in pecuniary matters or, or financial matters. And uh, to me, it just goes too far, and it uh, deals with a matter which really is, uh, should not be in the code of conduct of, of city council itself. It's, uh, maybe if we can separate the two for a second for, uh, for the sake of our listeners. Uh, when you're dealing with pecuniary matters or p- potential uh, conflict of interest in there, that's, I guess, essentially that the councillor may or may not uh, have some financial gain if they voted in favor of a certain project. I, I know maybe they have shares in such a company that's uh, bidding for a contract or something like that. In other words, they would benefit financially from it if they were to cast a vote on that. Is, that that's that's generally it, right? Lose, yes. All right, and that's been in play for quite some time. Well, that, that's under the Municipal Conflict of Interest Act, which, yeah. of course, is a provincial statute and requires uh, not only declaration of the uh, conflict or, or of the interest, but also uh, non-participation or voting in the matter. And they would simply separate themselves from voting and from the debate on what, whatever that matter is. But whose who's responsibility is it, George, to actually make that determination? Is it the individual counselor, or is it somebody else that would make that evaluation? It's up to the individual counselor. Uh, it's, it's within the discretion of the individual member of council who, who has his or her own powers and responsibilities under the Municipal Act and under the Municipal Conflict of Interest Act. And members of council are, are quite familiar with the Municipal Conflict of Interest Act dealing with financial interests. Mm-hmm. And that's interest, direct or indirect. Uh, it includes attributed interests. There, there are, are certain interests of, uh, of other persons uh, which are attributed to the, to the councillor. Uh, whereas the 
code of conduct provision that I recommended be removed, and, and that was adopted by the subcommittee, uh, deals with kind of a vague thing called a, a non-pecuniary non interest, which is not really defined. It, it, it goes on to cite examples, but that is, to me, not properly drafted. Uh, you don't have a provision that uh, that defines something by, by citing examples of it. You define it. Uh, counselors have a, a right to, to know what uh, requirements are imposed upon them and when they can vote and when they can't vote and when they can uh, participate in a matter or not. And uh, this code of conduct provision uh, uh, really confused that. And it's a confusing provision. And in my role as integrity commissioner, I've got to enforce the, the code of conduct or at least make recommendations to the council with respect to its enforcement of its code of conduct. And I don't think this is a provision that should be in there. But you've been around a couple of years. Why did you bring it to their attention now? Is it something you just recently came across? Uh, yes. Uh, it's something I, I recently, I, I went through the code of conduct to uh, just, you know, consider its, uh, its validity and, and its enforceability. And I came across this provision, and I thought, well, I don't know why it was put in in the first place, but I don't think it should be there, and uh, it needs to be removed in its entirety. Council can review uh, what provisions it wants in its code of conduct, and I suggested that uh, council review this one and, and remove it. Now, I know that you, at the meeting, you, you, as you just reiterated, you had some concerns about the definition of non-pecuniary, and, and again, maybe a, some of our listeners are scratching their heads right now saying, what does that mean? Does that mean joining a service club or, join, or having a business outside of your role as a counselor? I mean, uh, I know we're getting into the hypothetical here, but I mean, is there any way you can even loosely define that? Well, if, if it's going to be in there, it, it should certainly be defined. I'm not even sure, and, and this would be up to the city solicitor to uh, give advice on this, I'm not even sure whether they have the power to uh, to include such a provision. But in any event, if they're going to, they should make it in very clear terms because uh, counselors should not have allegations of interest being made against them. Uh, if, if, as is permitted under the provision I'm recommending be removed, the member declares an interest and then participates in the matter anyway, then the, the counselor is going to be under a shadow. And I, I can see uh, uh, the press reporting uh, that a counselor declared an interest and then participated anyway. And it casts a shadow on the counselor, and it casts a shadow on the uh, decision-making by the uh, by the council. Well, who put it in there in the first place, then? Who drafted these regulations? I, I don't know. Uh, it, not Certainly not the current city solicitor, uh, but, a, but a previous one. And I don't have the documentation that led to this being included, or, or who asked that it be included. The, the council, One of the subcommittee's recommendations was that, uh, that that I look into that in, in conjunction with the city solicitor, and I intend to do that. But in any event, at the, pre at the present time, it's something which I, I just don't think should be there. Counselors have a right to know what their responsibilities are and, 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 and not vague provisions defined by, by example. Well, that's what causes an awful lot of the controversy. I, having spent nine years on council myself, is if there's a gray area there, there's always going to be some sort of a conflict of interest or conflict of opinion as to whether or not there's a, there's an egregious uh, uh, misuse of of the councilor's power or not. That's really up to the. I mean, I guess it becomes rather subjective, then, doesn't it? It it, it does, and and councillors have a responsibility to uh, 
to deal with matters in, in front of them if, if they're at a, a meeting of, of a council. And having to deal with a matter which is defined by example, to me, just causes confusion. And it, uh, as I say, it casts a, it casts a cloud on, 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 on the work of councillors because they're expected when they're in, in attendance at a meeting of council or a committee, and this would also apply to a local board, to uh, participate in a matter uh, if, if it is a matter within the jurisdiction of the council itself. I, I, I don't know that law can ever be black and white. Uh, there's always going to be some gray areas, I would think, but yes. it, it certainly sounds like there's some clarity that was needed here. Yes, very, very much so. And uh, if, if there is to be a provision dealing with that type of, of matter, then, uh, I mean, once, once again, what are the, the public interest is, the, is really the defining uh, subject matter. And what is in the public interest when a member participates in a matter in which some family member may have a, an interest of some sort? Uh, as I say, it causes confusion and, and, and throws, a, throws a shadow on the councillor's own uh, activities. Well, it sets up a scenario where those that don't like the council are going to say that he breached the conduct, and uh, those that like him say no, he didn't. And, exactly. And, and never the twain shall meet. That's right, and, and it should be left to the uh, Municipal Conflict of Interest Act, which which really is the is is the provincial provision dealing with conflict of interest, and the council shouldn't create one of its own. Well, I was going to ask you about that, George. That's an interesting idea. The, the conflict, of, the municipal conflict of interest act and the municipal act have been in play for quite some time. And I know they were just modified a little while ago. But why then? And I guess I'm asking you about something that you didn't really have direct hand in. Why then would they draft a, a separate set of rules? I mean, I, I would think that the overarching uh, municipal conflict of interest act would be sufficient, at yeah, least so in my opinion. Yeah. So if if someone wants to bring in a, a court application against a councillor uh, for violating the Municipal Conflict of Interest Act, then that, that would be defined, that would be dealt with by the courts uh, under that act. And that act, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't leave it open to the council itself to, uh, to define or, or, or address so-called non-financial interests or non-pecuniary interests. So they, they've addressed that. I mean, they've, they've updated this just a little while ago, that they being the provincial government. Yes, and then one of the provisions in that legislation, uh, which was formerly known as Bill 68, uh, says that proceedings dealing with conflict of interest are to be brought only under that act. And once again, that, that to me would be another factor precluding the council itself trying to deal with conflict of interest. Well, again, it's kind of a head-scratcher as to why somebody back in whatever day that they drafted this up, I guess it would be almost 15 years ago now, uh, would think that such a thing as this was necessary. But uh, it looks like councils uh, accepted your recommendation. Of course, it has to be validated by the whole council, and I, hopefully that'll happen. But on that topic, though, George, uh, we, we talk about the modifications uh, to uh, the Municipal Conflict of Interest Act and the Municipal Act itself. Uh, it's, it's worthy of note here that one of those provisions in the updated uh, act is that uh, there'd be more power given to the Integrity Commissioner. Give me your thoughts on that. Well, it's the, it's the situation, and, and I mean, as, as it stands now, uh, I, as Integrity Commissioner, am available to uh, advise members of council with respect to their own responsibilities under, under the Act. They're, they're all free to call me, and they do from time to time. Uh, this would cre- create a situation in which I would be myself puzzled as to exactly what it is, what, what is the so-called interest of the, of the councillor. And it would it would impede me in giving advice to councillors, 
because once again, it's it's a vague provision. It's it's not properly defined, and I would have to say, well, if you have an interest, or if your family has an interest, whatever that may be, uh, whatever interest means, uh, you have to declare it, but then you can still participate. And to me, that is uh, that itself creates a, a, a conflict, and I think an undue incursion on the on the privacy of counselors. It casts a shadow on on the action of counselors who 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 follow the act, and it would really. I mean, I would recommend a counselor who is in a situation in in which they may or may not have a so-called non-pecuniary interest. I'd say, well, why don't you stay away from the meeting of counsel? And then they would would not be uh, in a situation of uh, carrying on their their responsibilities as a counselor and at the same time setting themselves up for a potential allegation of interest. I'm going to get into maybe a bit of a hypothetical, but if there is a potential conflict of interest, uh, uh, and, and i got to tell you, just in my experience watching counsel, uh, they, they tend not to want to point fingers at each other. But if a member of the public feels as if there's been a breach of that act, can they bring an action against that counselor? A breach of the municipal conflict of interest? Yeah. yeah. Oh, 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 yes. So so they can, would they approach you to do that, or do they have to, what, how do they approach that? Well, it is simply uh, is a situation where, where uh, in effect, they could get their own legal advice or they could just uh, make an allegation. And often, of course, uh, allegations are made to the press before they, uh, they get into a situation of, uh, of, of, a, of a court application. And once an, applica- and once an allegation is made, quite often it, it tends to stick. And, and you notice, for instance, people making allegations of conflict against counselors uh, in the in the period running up to a, a municipal election, and and you have a, an untested allegation, and yet there's a shadow cast over the counselor's actions. Uh, I, I think counselors should have clarity. They they should be in a position of of knowing exactly what they should do in any given situation, and not be in a situation of doubt, and defining a. Uh, uh, a provision, and as I say, I'm not even sure the council has the power to do it, but defining a provision on the basis of examples just doesn't do it. Well, we've seen that happen way too often, obviously, that the allegation becomes page one of the lead story in a newscast, and the, yes. exonera- the exoneration uh, is usually buried further down, you know, some weeks later. Yes, and 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 once again, I, I, I want, as integrity commissioner, I want to be in a position to, to talk to counselors and to give my opinion, and of course, as far as legal advice is concerned, they can also seek the opinion of the uh, of the city solicitor. Mm-hmm. And the city solicitor's responsibility is to advise counsel on 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 its legal position and uh, and and its powers and responsibilities. Uh, it, it, a headline which reads "Counselor Accused of of Conflict" uh, in itself can damage a counselor's uh, reputation. And as I say, I, I don't think uh, it should be in a position of doing that. George, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for adding some clarity to this. You're very welcome, Mr. Kelly. Nice talking to you. Good talking with you again. George Rusty, of course, the city's integrity commissioner. Because uh, I know that this was characterized at first as, well, he, you know, he's trying to cover counselors' backs because they don't want to get any bad press. But the problem is, is uh, the, the the legislation, and I don't know who drafted this, somebody at the city, maybe in the solicitor's department, is very ambiguous. And leaves so much open to interpretation. I think he was right to simply say, look, if you don't know what it means, get it out of there. That's the practical thing to do. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.